Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and uh, we were talking about module systems in the podcast, as we have been for a bit here. We had a little digression to talk about uh, modular data types, which was pretty cool. And um, <clears throat> I wanted to hit on one other topic, which I had mentioned earlier on, um, not a topic, but one other, uh, you know, uh, result or one other piece of work that somebody else had picked up and, and replied to a little bit on email with me. And uh, that is the, the language uh, Modula 2. And I found this paper in a, this conference called Hopple. If you've heard of that, you might not have heard of it. It's called History of Programming Languages. And if you're kind of, uh, you know, if you're not like a professional researcher, but you're just sort of interested in learning a little more about sort of like history of computing and research and stuff, um, some of these papers in history of programming languages will be a fun read because they're generally trying to kind of tell you the story about the programming language. And in particular, this one by Nicholas Wirth, 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 I'm not really sure. He was from ETH Zurich. Um... And the school that famously rejected Einstein a couple of times for, for study. Anyways, um, he was, uh, I guess, the inventor of Pascal. On my own knowledge of um, computing improved a bit by reading this article of his in uh, History of Programming Languages. The article is called Modula 2 and Oberon. And I can put a link in the, in the show notes for this. And uh, he talks about the, the history of Modula 2. And the reason... Um, I wanted to mention it was there are a couple things that first of all it's a great to read a paper that's talking about computing in the sort of 1970s and early 80s and it's pretty cool because Wirth um, took a sabbatical from you know his European professorship to come out to Xerox Park Palo Alto Research Center where when I was a humble undergrad I got a chance to uh, intern there for a summer and uh, wow what a storied place I mean they basically more or less invented the modern personal computer, uh, right, as far as I understand. And he went out there because of all this excitement. And he, you know, these guys were trying to create programming languages and compilers and stuff for these early computers. But as he mentions in his paper here, you know, this is the early days where having like 64K, 64K <laughs> of memory to work with was considered, you know, that that's what the machines had and that was considered quite a bit. Um, so... Uh, that obviously puts some pretty interesting constraints on the kind of stuff they could do. Um, and so uh, he describes Modula 2 as basically kind of like Pascal plus a module system, which doesn't sound... I, I, my first, well, I guess I first programmed in BASIC, but then I learned Turbo Pascal when I was in like elementary school or something. It was pretty cool. Um, I mean, looking at it now, it's kind of like, oh, golly, I don't want to write code in that language. But... Um, but so Modula 2 has some of the, you know, what I would consider not so nice. So we think we've made some good progress in language design since those days, uh, features of Pascal. But it also has a module system, which is interesting because um, I can't really tell from the way he's writing, but he sort of seems like he's claiming that maybe it was the first language to have, mo you know, code broken up into modules with explicit import and export lists. Which is interesting because, you know, the first module system we talked about, I think, on this chapter was Haskell's module system, which lets you do explicit um, imports and exports between modules. And Modula 2 had, and perhaps, again, if I'm understanding, you know, the way he's writing it, 
he didn't like I, it wasn't terribly explicit like oh this is we were the first ones to do this or something he just said well modulo 2 has this feature but it kind of as like it's said like most important innovation over uh pascal to let you organize code in modules with explicit import and export lists um so that that's pretty interesting just kind of an interesting historical note of where that feature maybe originated and um uh a couple other interesting historical notes I want to share from reading this paper, which again I quite liked, and I bet you that we'd find many more gems in Hopple uh, of of cool write-ups. I've read the Haskell one in Hopple; that was really informative as well. And again, Verth kind of gives you this whole story of kind of how the language was born. You know, he's working at Park and blah blah blah, and he's got this guy buddy he's working with and they don't have a big development team or anything so they got to be nimble and you know I mean, he tells kind of a, a bit of a story of it which is fun to read um but uh, a couple things i wanted to share that were very interesting to me sort of from a historical perspective first of all um he was uh the, the, okay I, I can't decide which order to show these things it points in one point that really surprised me was he basically said well we have, it's kind of a pity that the language is mostly type safe, but there are these weird little loopholes that let you break type safety. I don't think he used the phrase type safe, but he's basically like you could subvert the module system basically using some kind of like tagless record feature where I think you can basically just say like, oh, this piece of memory could, the fields could have these types and thus mean this, or they could have these other types and thus mean something else. And you could sort of pass between these meanings without really any constraint that they were actually satisfied. So, um, so this the language, although it was sort of it was a statically typed language, but it wasn't actually type safe. It didn't actually manage to prevent you from getting around the type system, although it tried to mostly. I mean, this is very peculiar to me. Um, not you know having been a language designer in the eighties, having been more like a you know, kindergartner in the early 80s. Um, the, uh, you know, because nowadays in programming language research, if you propose a type system, you're, you might propose one. And I mean, I don't think, I'm not really aware of people proposing type systems and acknowledging that, oh, they're not type safe. They might propose type systems and say, well, you know, we're going to have to do some part of the enforcement of the type system dynamically. Okay, that's totally fine. That's considered completely appropriate. But just to be like, oh, we got this type system. Here are these rules, how it works. But, oh, our, you know, it doesn't really enforce anything. It just kind of tries. Like, that, that would be really peculiar. I don't think you could publish a paper today with a, a language design where you, you had this kind of non-result. If, you, if you're giving a type system, you know, you need to show that your type system works. I mean, what's the point of describing something that, well, it kind of doesn't really work? Okay, <laughs> why don't you go get it to work and then come and tell us more about it? So that, that surpri really surprised me. And he kind of phrased it as sort of like, it was going to be so hard to make sure that there were no ways to get around the type system that they pretty much considered it hopeless. And so, and so that led to point number two, which I was more sympathetic to, which is they didn't include a garbage collector in Modula 2. And he gave three. He gives three reasons why there was no garbage collector, which I think is pretty interesting from a sort of historical consideration of garbage collection. Um, first one was he's kind of basically he thinks programmers would be better off being forced to to make their own effective memory management, like you know organize your code, set up your libraries, whatever, and manage that memory yourself, and you're going to do a better job 
than um, a runtime system would. That's his point. I, I mean, that's a little hard to swallow because it's so hard to do that. <laughs> it's hard to do that and, and get a system that doesn't have memory errors all over the place, which he acknowledges. He acknowledges, yeah, you know, memory errors are really, really awful to deal with. Um, double deletes and this kind of thing. Um, so, uh, but his other points in favor of no garbage collector were, well, one, he says, um, unpredictability of performance. He's kind of, we wanted Modula 2 to be suitable for real-time systems. We couldn't tolerate unpredictable garbage collection pause times. Like, yeah, okay, that's, that's a, every bit as valid a criticism today, in my opinion, as it was back then. Um, and then his third point was tied back to the first thing I was sharing with you, where he basically says, and the other thing is, you need to, for garbage collection to work, you need um, accurate, you know, information, dynamic information about the reference graph. I don't, he didn't use that term, but, you know, you need to know, well, this field of this record is a pointer to something of this type, and, right, the garbage collector needs to know um, if it's got a chunk of memory and it's supposed to um, find out what memory is reachable from that, it needs to know what the structure of the reference graph is there. And he said, because our type system cannot prevent people from doing bad stuff, we can't be sure that they haven't messed up our runtime information that tells us what the reference graph is. And so the garbage collector would be unsafe. And I mean, that's def that was an interesting point. So it's basically, because the language wasn't type safe, they did, they, that was the reason for not having a garbage collector. Because the garbage collector could be do arbitrary mayhem, basically, if they had corrupted the, the runtime information, if the program had corrupted the runtime information thanks to breaking type safety. To which I guess my answer would be kind of, well, if the program's already... Um, uh, if it's the program's already, you know, not... Um, memory safe, and you've already corrupted your memory, then the fact that the garbage collector isn't going to work correctly, it's like, but pretty much nothing is going to be expected to work correctly. If some program has done some horrible diggling around to the memory and messed things up, I mean, I wouldn't really be crying that, oh my gosh, my garbage collector might exhibit some weird behavior. I'd just be kind of, well, as, a, as the you know, implementer of the language, I would just tell the programmer, I'm sorry, if you screw up like that, then um, then the garbage collector might also do bad stuff. I mean, I guess from a debugging perspective, that would still be awful, right? Because now you potentially are seeing horrible behavior that's partly influenced by horrible behavior of the runtime system, which you don't even have access to the source code or anything there So, in general. So, yes, that would probably make the problem worse. I guess I could agree with that. Um, but anyway, I thought that was, uh, was kind of interesting. Um, anyhow, so, uh, that's all I kind of wanted to share about that. And I'm still thinking about what I want to talk about next in a bigger sort of chunk of discussion. I might still keep going and wrapping up some of this module system stuff because it's, it's pretty interesting. And people gave me some good leads that I didn't really have a chance to follow. Okay. Um, thank you very much for listening. I hope you are well wherever you are and drop me a line sometime if you want to talk about anything. All right. Thanks.